0: Welcome back to Beyond Well with Sheila Hamilton. I am so absolutely thrilled today to see my good friend Mimi Feldman. She is the author of He Came In With It, a memoir of motherhood and madness. Uh, I will tell you, it's one of the best memoirs that I've ever read around mental health. Mimi, congratulations and happy book birthday. Thank you so much. This is um, such a stunning book for me because there's been so few memoirs written about um, schizophrenia in particular from the perspective of a caregiver. Tell me why you thought it was important that this point of view be shared.
1: Well, you know, when this first started, when Nick was a teenager and uh, we knew something was wrong and then it just kept getting worse and worse. As I realized that I was dealing with serious mental illness, I began to sort of go into myself and build this wall around my family, myself and my son. It was as though the collective shame and stigma in society had a direct line into me and it wasn't even something that I had thought much about in my life before it happened and I felt so alone And so isolated, and I really felt like I was the only person in the world who was going through this. Somewhere in those first few years, I thought, you know, if I live through this, I want to write it down, this story. Because now I think if I picked up my book 15 years ago, it really would have made all the difference. Because the isolation and the feeling that you're just drifting is horrifying.
0: I want to begin um, where you began with a bouncing, beautiful baby boy who seems unusually precocious. Those early years, there was no hint. There was nothing that could have given you an indication that Nick was going to be any different from your two girls, correct?
1: If anything, I thought he was going to rule the world. He was such an extraordinary kid. He was smart, he's incredibly talented artist, he was charming, he had such a good moral compass. I mean, he really was an extraordinary kid, but that's not unusual. I've spoken with now many, many mothers, and um, with schizophrenia, with some degree, there are people who show signs early on, but generally it's late teens, early 20s onset, and it's really almost like turning a switch a regular kid, and all of a sudden, things start going wrong.
0: I was so struck by how um, honest and gripping you are in your account of discovering that Nick was using drugs, and your concern and your worry that perhaps the type of drugs that he was using might have actually prompted the onset. Walk people through that, if you would, Mimi.
1: Well, it can be trauma. Trauma is something that definitely can trigger. But I've done extensive reading. Drugs are terrible <laughs> for nascent mental illness. You know, I'm from the '60s. I'm from you know that era, and you know we sort of regarded as pot as pot no big deal. And I remember sitting in a doctor's office when we were going through this, and him saying to me, "Don't kid yourself. Marijuana is a psychotropic drug that messes with the brain chemistry." it's not nothing. It's really something. The problem is as these kids are getting sick and their symptoms are emerging, quite often they turn to drugs to self-medicate. Then the drugs in turn make it worse. You know, it's one thing I've done quite well in my evolution of not spending my entire life blaming myself for this. But one of the things that I am kind of stuck on and I wish I had known better would have been to be much more um, proactive about the drug thing because part of me that feels like, you know, maybe this didn't have to happen. You know, maybe that triggered it. Maybe if we had stopped it and that's, those are the things that are hard to live with. So I would say to other parents, drugs are just not good. You know, I mean, I look at it now, my opinion about it is like alcohol. You know, you're not supposed to drink alcohol until you're an adult. Well, I think if you're when you're an adult, if you decide you want to smoke pot, then go ahead and smoke pot. But I don't think kids should. Their brains are developing and you don't know where your kid's brain is going. Better err on the side of caution.
0: One of the most striking things about your book, Mimi, is um, how much you hold yourself and your family accountable for really being in that kind of magical thinking, like it's just a phase, he's just kind of going through a weird thing. Um, Really, uh, I think the painful thing for me as loving someone with a mental illness too is the extent to which we as family members go through uh, a period where we're just unwilling to face reality. And I want you to walk people through just a few of the examples of times where, in hindsight, wow, I can't believe I reacted that
1: way. The first thing was when he cut his wrist when he was um, 15 or 16. And I mean, it's not that I didn't take action, but that was such a serious thing. And the therapist and the therapist deemed it an inauthentic attempt. So we didn't need to worry. And the thing is, anytime a doctor or a clinician or you know, the lady at the supermarket gives you an opportunity to be in denial, you grab it. Oh, okay. It's inauthentic. That's good. We don't have to worry about it. Well, it, it was something that needed to be quite seriously attended to. I have one thing that really haunts me. I remember when he was about 16 and he'd broken up with a girlfriend and he was heartbroken and I was sitting on his bed and he was laying there and he was telling me how bad he felt and At the end of the conversation, he said to me, you know, I have voices in my head, thoughts in my head, and they're they're really bad, Mom the bad things. And I launched into, you know, my textbook mom talk about don't worry about what you think. Everybody has weird thoughts and bad thoughts. What matters is what you do. And and you know, all of that would have been perfectly appropriate for any other kid. But I look back on it now and I think, Wow, was that the beginning of it? Was he telling me he was hearing voices in his head? Mm-hmm. And I just, you know, had no frame of reference by which to take that seriously, but I just sloughed it off and things like that haunt me.
0: I am um, so moved by it because I have, you know, in my own life, these stirring examples of where it was staring me in the face how serious the crisis had become and, and our hope and our willingness to, to believe that things are going to get better or that this is just a phase is so ingrained in us. You, and, just,
1: uh, you, you just push it away. There was another time When he had finished high school and he was making this attempt at city college and, you know, things weren't going well and I couldn't get him to go. And one day he said, you know, mom, I don't want to go. Everybody looks at me like I'm weird. You know, when I was in high school, I was always the smartest kid and I would raise my hand and everybody would listen. And now when I talk in class, they look at me like I'm weird. And I did the same thing, the default setting. Oh no, you're just not prepared. You need to, you know, do your studying and read the book. You're just off your game, Nick. You just need to, and I think back on it now and I think, yeah, of course, he sounded, you know, they were looking at him like it was crazy. It was only a matter of a few weeks after that, that his dad and I were looking at him the same way because he was developing disordered thoughts, which then were manifesting in his speech. So of course he was raising his hand in class and saying crazy off the wall things, but I just, I just didn't see it.
0: Mimi, I am so struck by how raw you are in the description of what happened to your family. Um, the kind of pressure that it, that mental illness just exerts on families is so unbelievably horrible because family members deal with it in completely different ways. You generally have a fixer like you who's trying very, very hard to let the rest of the family have some semblance of normalcy. And uh, boy, I was so struck by the line in which your daughter said, mom, it's not Nick who, who has a problem right now, it's you. She was she was in some ways kind of that galvanizing light for you and your family of a person who actually was dealing with reality.
1: Yeah, she was. She was really my wingman. And you know, it's interesting because this many years later, I mean, everybody's grown up. All three girls are adults, married in their lives. And that particular daughter, my middle girl, it was, it's only been this year that she's gone to therapy. She called me up and she said, I can't believe I haven't even begun to deal with any of it. I, you know, I never dealt with it. It's all just starting now. And there are things, you know, she was went to a phase of being angry at me because she had to be much more of an adult than she should have been. She was taking care of me. And that was so unfair. I mean, thank God she was there. I don't know what I would have done, but it takes its toll. And it's one thing that now when I give talks and I, and I do my advocating, it's something that I really want people to be aware of is think about the other kids, consider the other siblings. Now, I did the best I can. could. I mean, one kid was on fire. I had to attempt to that. Yeah. But the other kids get shoved to the margins and there is damage done my two younger ones, especially. My youngest one felt like she was invisible for years. And then Lucy had to take care of me. And looking back on it now, I think what I could have done is assign a surrogate to each kid. Yes. Take a friend of mine and ask them to be her kind of surrogate mom, her guardian angel, her confidant, Look out after her. Because when you have this kind of a crisis in your family, there's only so much of you as the mom, I would have provided for them more. You know, yes, they went to some therapy and different things, but I don't think therapy is necessarily what they needed. I think they needed a mom.
0: What every kid growing up needs. I was so struck by how um, Nick's illness caused such a rift between you and your husband because as many disciplinarians, he just wanted Nick to straighten up. And you wanted Nick to have a chance, and I want you to talk about how that relationship evolved and where it is today mimi
1: it's it was even it's deeper and more complicated than that you know he would default to this disciplinarian thing, but I think what that was about is this is his only son, the two of them were inseparable i mean the whole first Two years of Nick's life. I was working all the time, and Craig was working at home, so he was his primary caregiver at home. And that we used to make jokes that they were like Sean and, and John Lennon. I mean, they re- and they went on road trips together, and fishing, and camping. And Craig was basically abandoned by his own father, and so he had resurrected the father-son relationship with his own son, and had kind of healed himself by being a very close, very hands-on dad. And when Nick started to go off the rails, and I'm sorry, I just want to say one thing about my language is, you know, I say things like going nuts and off the rails and things like that. And I know that there's a whole protocol of etiquette about the words you can and can't say I'm here in the trenches And I'm doing the fight and I'm going to talk and use the words that I need to use. And I'm sorry if it offends anybody, but there's not a human being on the planet who has more respect and regard for people with mental illness. So that's my disclaimer. Yeah. So when he started going off the rails, I think for Craig, it was just, he, he, it broke his heart in such a way that, um, it's never been fixed. And to this day, It's a very sad thing because they have a distance. All Nick wants is his dad's attention and to be with his dad. I don't think that Craig is unique. What I've learned in talking to tons of people is it's very difficult for men, especially when it's their son. Men in general see their sons as a reflection of themselves, an extension of themselves, and it's all tied up in their sense of themselves and their ego and all of that. So many men just pull away. I mean, when I go to, when I used to go to the NAMI meetings and things, it's always the moms there. You rarely see a father. Craig loves Nick dearly. I mean, obviously. And he will do anything that needs to be done. But he finds it very difficult spending time with him. It's so excruciatingly painful to him. To me, that's one of the biggest tragedies in all of this is the distance between them.
0: So Mimi, we've talked often um, amongst ourselves about stigma and how differently people are treated when they have a brain illness rather than when they have an illness of cancer or diabetes or something like that. And I'm very curious if you've ever had this heart-to-heart with Craig about if our son had cancer, I am quite sure that you would not be quite so ashamed.
1: Yes, of course I have many times, but it's not ashamed. Mm. He finally told me just a couple years ago. You know, Craig has his own issues. He, he battles depression, mm-hmm. and there is some mental illness in his family. So he feels guilt. He feels responsible. He feels that it, it came from his genetics. At one point, we finally got down to it, and he looked at me, and he said, Don't you understand, Mimi? I look at Nick, and I feel like I'm just a hair's width away from being there myself.
0: Oh, my goodness.
1: And wow. I feel like if I get too close, I'm going to tumble into the abyss. And so I think that part of it for him is hanging on to his own well-being. And, I mean, I know that that's complicated and it feels or sounds maybe selfish, but it's not. He's afraid. I think he's afraid that if he allows himself, you know, there but for the grace of God. And the whole thing... I mean, it's just so tragic and so terrible, because here you have a father and son who should be like this, and they're not. But I love this man, and he's the father of my children, and I have to come to terms with this and accept it, because it is what it is. I mean, we're 15 years into this now, but, you know, holding a family together and holding a marriage together through something like this is difficult to say the least.
0: Yeah. Statistically, you're an anomaly that you survived it, that your marriage yep. survived it, and that your, your other children survived it. I, I want to, to talk a bit about COVID because I know COVID for most people has been a pressure, but for people with uh, members of their family who have mental illness, it's been extremely difficult. And then I read a piece you wrote, schizophrenia prepared me for this. Okay. How so, Mimi.
1: When this all started, and especially the first couple months when we were all in panic mode and afraid all the time and worrying, you know, just every minute, we were very much in the moment. And I realized it's kind of the way I live anyway, because with Nick, there's a part of me that, you know, every time the phone rings, every time a letter comes with a certain return address, you know, I'm just ready for, okay, you know, what's the next catastrophe? And so I I kind of live in fight or flight mode. And I also, there's a certain degree of isolation in that. And I feel like it really prepared me, but there's also a, a good side to that too, in that you're very much in the moment. And I think that this whole COVID thing, one of the things that it's been very good, I think for everybody, and we may not know it yet, but I think in the long run, we're all gonna see it, is we're very much with ourselves because, there's very little distraction, and we're also very much in the moment. We can't plan ahead, we, can't, we don't know what's gonna happen, we don't know what's gonna be happening a week from now, a day from now, and so it's forced us all to be with ourselves and to be in the moment, and that's very much how you live as a parent of somebody with this kind of an illness.
0: I've spoken to lots of other people with schizophrenia who've told me um, for the first time they think maybe other people understand their reality a little bit more. Has well, Nick- you
1: know, I called my daughter and I said to her in the beginning, I said, to her, so who's the one person on the planet who is the prototype perfect quarantine person following every rule and hasn't had to change his life one bit? And she said, Nick. And we started laughing because, you know, Nick, on top of everything, he's got a sprinkling of OCD. So I doubt if he's touched a doorknob in 10 years. Uh Uh-huh. he really just the way that he lives. He's perfect. All he had to do is put on a mask, and he hasn't changed his life at all.
0: Yeah. And even oh.
1: that rarely, because he doesn't go out that much.
0: Did he talk to you at all, though? I I talked to a lot of people who have schizophrenia who say s- some of the voices have often talked about pandemic prior to this. That if oh, you really? don't do this, yes, it's you, a pandemic will occur. And mm-hmm. so I find it hilarious. And you know, back to that whole: are they shamans or are they sick? Um, yeah. The hilariousness of you see, I told you I didn't do what the voices said, and here it
1: is. You know, it is. yeah. yeah now you know Nick doesn't really talk about it. It's very hard to get him to talk about his symptoms he does a weird sort of normalizing thing he hasn't been like this in a while but when he would like smash holes in the wall or things like that and i would come more holes in the wall why yeah and i i would say to him you know tell me what's going on and we'll try and address it so that you won't feel frustrated so this way and he will say no 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 i just i stumbled and i fell against the wall and that's what did it or you know or, you know, things will be broken, and oh, no, no, you know, I think I I turned around too fast, and it fell over, so he does this normalizing thing, so it's hard to get him to talk about things, he didn't, you know, I was out of, I was actually in New York City in March, I was, and I was staying with friends who had COVID, but we didn't know it then, and um, when I came back, it was right when everything was locking down and he didn't even really know about it at that point so I told him about it and it took a couple weeks for it to get into his head so but now he's aware of it and he's kind of normalized it and you know old the COVID and that's why the restaurants aren't open but he's not particularly concerned about it. Um,
0: Mimi I I know you feel strongly as I do that the efforts to try to normalize conversations around mental health while they've been terrific, have really pushed people with serious mental illness into a category that's not that beneficial. Tell me why you think we need to actually start reassigning some of our motivation and our passion and our advocacy for people with serious mental illness.
1: Well, you know, there's a real division between mental illness and serious mental illness. Depression, anxiety, all these things are very serious and impact people's lives gravely. But there really is a division between that and what they call serious mental illness, which is schizophrenia and the more severe bipolar, and and anything that really tips over into psychosis. There's been a tremendous and wonderful movement in the zeitgeist over the last 10 to 15 years to destigmatize mental illness, to talk about it, to be open about it, to not be ashamed about it. And I think that that's great. But there's so much money. And so much energy going into that now that I personally think that it's uneven. It's you know the the resources aren't being spent where they should, and also I think that an unfortunate byproduct of that is that there's this in the effort to destigmatize mental illness in general. I think that it's gotten to the point where people are regarding very serious things like schizophrenia as something that you can't talk about or in so- assign the seriousness to, because oh, then you're stigmatizing them, you know, I, I was involved in uh, movement that's started by Kenneth Cole. Uh, are you aware of that? I think it's called One Mind, and it's it's a it's a whole campaign for stigma. But and so I did a video for them, and I'm on the website. But in it, there were rules of the language that you're allowed to use, and you're not allowed to say you know I'm afflicted with or I suffer from or you know. And it's this thing of the sanitizing that I think has gone too far mm-hmm. because schizophrenia is scary. Mm-hmm. And untreated schizophrenia can and is violent in a mm-hmm. lot of cases yep. and dangerous. Mm-hmm. And, and pretending that it's not isn't helping anybody. So I think that, the, that there has to be funding for research. You know, there hasn't been a new drug for schizophrenia in 35 years they uh, you know maybe it's i don't even know really why you know maybe it's not profitable that's obviously what motivates the drug companies but i mean here you have this disease that affects 1% of the population that's a lot of people
0: yes it is we
1: need to be helping these people this yeah. is a serious disease
0: and so many of the people do not have the kind of loyal um just stubborn <laughs> caregiver that they have in you that nick has in you mimi i mean if you query most people on the streets, there is some sort of serious mental illness there. At least half, I think, is the statistic in Portland, Oregon, where I live. And yet we ha- we're still operating under the false premise of the Reagan promise that we could empty our state hospitals and treat people in community settings with very, very little medication and uh, just a lot of support. And none of it none of it actually serves people who are suffering from serious mental illness. I completely agree with you.
1: And it didn't happen anyway. I mean, they didn't follow through on these community-based centers. Right. You know, there's but not to replace it. And honestly, Sheila, we need mental hospitals. Yes. you know what I mean? I totally agree with you. This is a serious disease, and there are some people who can't live in society or don't have somebody to take care of them. I mean, this is pretty much... I mean, I'm I'm a pretty energetic person, so I get other things done too. But I mean, this can pretty much take over your whole life. We need facilities. I mean, you know the de facto mental health institutes are the jails.
0: I've also just really um, taken... So much complete empathy for you, Mimi, when you post occasionally about the fights that you have to have to continue to get next care, the drug running out, the insurance companies denying. It is a full-time job and it's made a full-time job so that people stop continuing to advocate for their loved ones. And I love this um, community you're building around mothers, especially of people with mental illness, seeing themselves more as a block. As a group of people who, if they banded together and actually advocated and lobbied, the numbers are strong.
1: Yes. And there's a lot going on. You know, there's an organization in Oregon, Mothers, actually, you should interview her. Her name is Jerry Clark. And yeah. she started this organization, Mothers of the Mentally Ill. And it's tragic, her son, Calvin committed suicide. Um, And here's another, and you know, she, actually she's not important, she's in in Vancouver, so she's actually technically in Washington. You know, talk about a person with energy and intelligence and and resources. I mean, she actually basically um, did a one woman sit-in in in Governor Ensley's office till she got some help for her son, and she did everything right, Sheila, everything right, and he still ended up dead. Wow. And so she started this organization and they're phenomenal in her advocacy and her eloquence. I mean, she's, I'm in awe of her. And there are other organizations like that, but it is, it's virtually not impossible, but almost impossible to get the right kind of help. And again, I'm, you know, a white woman with relatively, you know, decent financial resources and a college education and I'm a pit bull, but, it's brought me to my knees, I mean, and, and the interactions with the police and things like that. You know, I used to see these people homeless on the streets screaming on the street corner and I would think, where's their mom? Like, what the hell is this? Where is their mom? But now I understand. If someone, if it brings someone like me to their knees, you know, people without resources or the ability or, or the money or, you know, any any one of those things, you know, you can so easily reach a point where it's not that you don't care anymore, it's that you can't do anything. Mm,
0: that is another quote that I'm going to underline. So Mimi, how is Nick today?
1: Right now, he's good. Um, he, he's happy about the book. He, hasn't, he doesn't really read books anymore, but he knows about it and he's thrilled that his artwork is on the cover. Beautiful. And, this um, is a,
0: a painting that Nick did himself, self-portrait.
1: Yeah, he did that when he was 16, God, and just so um, talented. I was so grateful to Turner Publishing that they let us use that. Yeah. I, I, had, I was very happy for that. And um, so he lives in an apartment. Uh, you know, my husband and I live up here on top of a mountain in the middle of nowhere. And he lives in the town nearby in Centralia. And he lives in an apartment building that's a HUD subsidized apartment. And there's, you know, it's, it's for senior citizens and people with disabilities. So mostly it's old people and people in wheelchairs and things like that. But there's also a few younger people who have, you know, mental disabilities. And, um, and so it's a nice, quite safe place. And they have a certain amount of oversight. Like there's a guy who's there every day uh, just kind of, you know, like managing things. And, and he also now here in Washington, um, he qualified for a DHS caregiver. So now for the first time, I mean for 10, 12 years, it was me every day. Everything. And I used to have to go to his house twice a day to give him his meds. And, you know, in the beginning here, it's an hour round trip. Now he has caregivers. He just basically kind of sits in his apartment. He started recently painting again, Mm. which is exciting. And I'm hoping that he'll continue that. And we're in the process of doing a medication change right now. So I'm hopeful for that too. But, you know, that's another issue that I think is a really important issue about schizophrenia in particular, and I wrote an article about this. It's very frustrating with schizophrenia, because what is considered Nick is considered a success story, mm-hmm. because he's not hurting anyone, he's not hurting himself, and he's not smashing up his apartment. So they've got to so once you get somebody with schizophrenia medicated to the point where they're not a problem to society, they're considered a success story, and basically the medical profession's done with them. They're done with them. You know, as long as they're not a problem for society, they're done with them. And, you know, that's not good enough for me. Mm. This is my kid. This is something that I've grown to feel very strongly about. You know, like I said, 1% of the people have this disease. That's a lot of people. Why is it okay to say, well, as long as we get to the point where they're not a problem for anybody else, we're done with them. He's a human being. He deserves to have a life. People with serious mental illness have a right to a place in our society we're not doing them a favor they have a right to a place in this world why are we turning our back on them what if when people had, you know somebody had cancer and had to have a leg amputated they sewed up the leg they let it heal and they plopped them down on the couch in their apartment and said we're done No physical therapy, no wheelchair, no prosthetic, no learning to understand, no psychological counseling on how to deal with the fact that you don't have a leg anymore. Just sit on the couch for the rest of your life. That is in effect what they're doing with people with schizophrenia. And it's not good enough for me. And it's not that everybody has to be nice and do them a favor. They're part of this world and they are entitled to a place in it. And we have to carve out a place in our society for these people to live it's immoral not to i
0: I really like the way you approach it mimi is also to say that this anti-medication bent and i know how you feel about this that people with schizophrenia cannot be not medicated they can't go around you know in their lives uh, just listening to their voices and doing what they please so where is the line on medicating people too much to the point where they have no no will, no energy, no motivation? And that other part, which is they get out of hand and they cause violence and, and create, is there a middle ground?
1: You know, there is a middle ground. I know several people now with schizophrenia who are incredible. I mean, I'm friends with Ellen Sachs, who yeah. is a law professor at USC, but she is on medication. She's yeah. on clozapine, which is, she's the one who... Mean me going on that, then that's what we're switching Nick to now. But I have another friend um, in Los Angeles who runs a nonprofit for people with mental illness and he has schizophrenia and he's not on medication at all. He's learned to moderate his own symptoms. So there are, but that's so much the exception to the rule. You know, that's so rare. I think the problem is that the medications that exist mitigate the positive symptoms which i know you you know what this is but i'll say it for the audience which are the things that are added to their personality the paranoia the delusions the hearing voices all of that stuff as they mitigate those things they also tamp down completely who the person is and their motivation and their desire and actually their ability to have joy yeah that's killed yeah and so certainly we need to put a little more attention towards medications that don't do that. That's what we need. But if you had a very good doctor who knows how to titrate and and balance and keep track of it, it's possible to find a good balance. It's just that it's not what they do. The doctor I have now, I'm going to say his name because he's a genius and an angel is named Robert Leitman and he's in New York and I found him because I started doing research on clozapine and he's the guy and so I reached out to him. He's written a book about it and he took Nick on as a patient and I've created this this great consortium of doctor's here and that doctor there and we do everything with FaceTime and I'm driving around delivering things to all the different doctors but we're on top of it and it's happening and he, was, he's, he has over 200 patients that he wow. switched over to colchicine, and it's its its very hopeful. I'm very. Hopeful oh my
0: gosh, I'd so love to hear that. Some actual real steps. Yep. Is there an advocacy um, portal? I know um, Mimi the Riveter is your place where you're kind of galvanizing people on Instagram but is there organizations or places that moms should join, especially if they're dealing with loved ones with schizophrenia?
1: Well, you know, SARDA, the S-A-R-D-A-A, it's the Schizophrenia and Related Diseases Association of America. They're wonderful and they advocate and they're pushing to recategorize schizophrenia as a neurological disease, which will be really helpful in terms of funding. And research. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So there's Sarda and there's of course NAMI. I mean, you know, I just can't say enough. It saved my life, their family to family program. It's just a place to go where they can direct you and they can help you. And anyone who wants to reach out to me so far, I'm still, I'm not so popular that I can't get back to everybody. You know, I get letters from moms all over the world now Mm -hmm. and you know, we talk and it's, To me, it's helpful to me to talk to these people. So you can always reach out to me uh, on my website, which is miriam-feldman.com. And stay tuned because, you know, now that the book's out, I don't know what's next, but I'm going to do something.
0: Well, the first step for everyone is to buy this book, especially for people that are interested in really incredible memoirs about mental illness. He came in with it, A Portrait of Motherhood and Madness. Miriam Feldman, thank you so, so very much. It's just wonderful. Yeah, It's been wonderful to speak with you and see you again.
1: And thanks for everything you do, because you are really helping too.
0: Thank you.